What are the marks of a healthy church? What characteristics distinguish a thriving church from a church that is merely playing religious games or functioning as little more than a social club? The corporate characteristics of a healthy church will obviously reflect the lives of the believers who comprise that church. You cannot have a healthy church that is comprised of unhealthy individual members. And likewise, spiritually thriving believers hardly constitute an unhealthy body. So there is an individual side to what we look at today, and there's also a corporate side to it. But what are those characteristics? How do we distinguish a healthy church? How do you distinguish a healthy church? And what then should we value in one another's lives? What should bring thanksgiving out of our hearts as we look to one another in our life together as the body of Christ? I don't think the answer to these questions is subjective. We do not have the freedom to determine for ourselves the essential marks of a healthy church. Not something we define. But objective answers are revealed in the Word of God. And one rich source of such answers is found in the history of the believers in the city of Thessalonica. The first chapter of Paul's epistle to this church, if you'll make your way there, This church at Thessalonica provides an invaluable look under the hood of a thriving church. And this vision serves to challenge us. It serves to test us as a church as we strive individually to be faithful members of this church and then corporately constitute a healthy church together. The background to this book is intriguing. We do not have time to look at it in any great detail. But after his first missionary journey, the Apostle Paul attended the Jerusalem Council, recorded in Acts 15, and he then returned to his sending church at Antioch, where he eventually departed on another journey westward. So he's worked his way, as we look on the map here, from the Council of Jerusalem here, up the coast to the home church, the sending church of his first uh, journey here at Antioch. And then, working his way westward, as he leaves Antioch and is sent out by the church, you remember the departure with Barnabas, he takes Silas to be his partner on his team, and uh, probably there are others with them, but he's a significant individual in the team. They work their way through the Cilician Gates in the area near where Paul's hometown of Tarsus, and then work their way west, seeking to build up the churches that were established on the first missionary journey. But he comes to the city of Derbe. Remember what happens there. At Derbe he meets Timothy. A church has been thriving there for some time. And as Paul bolsters that church and encourages it, he meets this young man that the church is really supporting and and they're encouraged by his life. He brings Timothy with him. And they work their way then to some of these other churches that uh, have been started in this region. Now at this place, as they're working their way across the continent and and the nation of what we now know as Turkey, they strive, it would appear, to go southward into the area of Ephesus. Paul does not describe why this is the case, or Luke, as he records it in Acts, why this is the case, but God says, no, I don't want you to go south into this area. That's indeed where they were headed, but it was somewhere in the region of Asia. Then the text of Acts 
records that they sought to go north into Bithynia. Well, if we're not to go this direction, then perhaps we're to go this direction into Bithynia. And again, undescribed to us, the Spirit of the Lord says, no, I don't want you to go there. We don't know what the circumstances are, how they determined what God precisely wanted, but they were not able to go where they wanted to go. It was a frustrating season, undoubtedly, for them. They find their way ultimately to Troas and to this port city. Not really sure where they should go. Perhaps they think that Troas is where they will land. But as they're at Troas, there's a vision that Paul receives. He sees a man in the region of Macedonia, this upper portion, northern portion of Greece today, beckoning to Paul who's here at Troas, come over and help us. Apparently there was not an intention to go into what we know to be Europe today, into Greece. But God leads them there, directs them there to this place, and so the team crosses from this port city of Troas across to Philippi, and they have a very fruitful ministry there. While they're at Philippi, you remember that with all of the fruitfulness of ministry, with Lydia, uh, who is converted, and, and the Philippian jailer, there's trouble there too. They met the jailer under less than ideal circumstances, you'll remember. And they were beaten there in the jail. But they have to leave then, Philippi. They're able to, for a brief time, strengthen the church. But then they leave there, to leave the heat, as it were, of Philippi, a persecution. And they make this 100-mile journey across to Thessalonica. About a five-day journey walking, and you can imagine the physical condition they're in, having received a beating in jail it probably wasn't a very easy journey across but there is a nice road that leads across there and so they made their way to Thessalonica and here again God meets them with his mercy and his grace there's there's a great response to the gospel they find that response in the synagogue of the Jews there's also Greek fearing uh, there are those that are uh, God fears among the Gentiles who trust Christ the Savior, and it would appear possibly that they stayed there for some time later and saw other Gentiles come to Christ the Savior. So there's a great response here. This is a place, though, where they said, these are the men who have turned the world upside down. And now they've come to our city, and there is tremendous opposition and persecution. So Paul is forced to leave Thessalonica before he wants to. He speaks of it in fact, of being torn away from these believers. They've come to faith in Christ. There's been a powerful movement of the Spirit of God. But imagine it. Now this great response, He brings the message to them, but now has to leave them, and it's not happy times in Thessalonica. There's persecution there. Great difficulty. And so in those difficulties, these new believers are left. Paul will at great cost to himself eventually send Timothy back desiring to hear if the Thessalonian church has actually stood the test. He's fairly traumatized by the situation. And after this agonizing wait, wondering what has become of this infant church, it's almost like he is a mother who's given birth to a baby and knows that that baby is being left out in the wilderness alone wondering if the life has been sustained. But when Timothy arrives, possibly in Corinth, and brings the good news that the church is thriving and growing, Paul is filled with thanksgiving. 
He brings glory to God for the work that the Gospel has done. And He brings glory to God and thanksgiving in His prayers as He thinks of these people that He dearly loves. You'll notice as we look at this first chapter that Paul's concern is not how the building drive is going. It's not whether or not they are meeting budget. It's not whether or not somebody's mowed the church lawn this week. These are really significant matters. This is a life and death situation. They can abandon the faith. This church could stop. They could be killed for the cause of Christ. In this kind of a situation, the only things that mattered were the only things that really mattered. And so he gives thanks to God as he inquires about them, learns now from Timothy. He gives thanks to God for what God is doing in their lives. And here then, we see a revelation of what really matters. We see a revelation of what God intends a healthy church to be. Now one more point, and that is that when we think of letters in the ancient setting, we need to think outside of our context. There's no cell phone call here. There's no way to Skype. There's no instant messaging. They can't text uh, the Apostle Paul and let him know that all is well. In that day, letters took on a whole different meaning. And it, We can get anywhere on this earth uh, within pretty close to a 24-hour period. I mean, that's even as we're serviced by the commercial uh, airline industry. For them, it was just a five-day walk. A five-day walk one way from Thessalonica and Philippi, let alone where Paul is. So when a letter came in the ancient setting, it was almost as if you were living in one another's presence. There's passion in this letter. It's like that you are creating a way in which to bring that person to you, and you're communing with one another in this exchange. So we read all of that into this history and this, the, the sense of the ancient letter as we come to this letter that Paul writes to these believers in Thessalonica. He begins with the greeting there in verse 1, Paul Silvanus, a different form of the word Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So Paul writes with his cohorts here this letter, The Thessalonians were in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus. Terminology of union with God. They were genuine believers, members of the body of Christ, and thus God had extended to them grace and peace. And Paul greets them this way. Then in verses 2-10, through we see at least what I'd like to draw out is seven marks of a thriving church. Now, this is not a formal outline that's going to flow from the passage. We will go verse by verse through it. But I'm seeking to draw out here more of what would be an application outline from this text. We're not going to look at, here's the greeting, here's the thanksgiving. But to realize that we're looking under the hood here of this thriving church. And we have the revelation of God, the Spirit's Word, that this is what a church is to be. What matters when you get down to all that matters? As we draw that out by way of application, a healthy church is marked first of all by this, by a faith that works. We find this in verse 3. After verse 2, he gives thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. A work of faith is is a key idea here. And we witness, before we get to that, the consistency of Paul's team in prayer. 
You notice that he, he says we pray. It might indicate here that the team is gathered together in corporate prayer remembering the Thessalonian believers and praying in behalf of them and saying we give God thanks as a missionary team for what we hear of your faith in Jesus. And when we look at that faith, what we remember, what really matters, what gives Paul and his teammates joy is the kind of faith in God that produces works. Genuine faith in God always produces works. Now remember this past week's memory verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. This is the gift of God. So it's not salvation by works but as Ephesians 2 and verse 10 makes it clear that God saves us unto good works that's the project that Jesus is doing he's rescuing a people certainly from hell but Jesus is rescuing us from hell saving us by his grace that we would be transformed here and now that we would live out good works that genuine faith in God gets busy serving Him by serving others, by stabilizing the churches that Jesus is serving, and by spreading the Gospel of Christ to see others converted. It is a faith that works. A trust in God that becomes active in His work. The second characteristic here is the love that labors. Verse 3 he gives thanks for the labor of love that marks them as a church. A love that labors. We are born into this world as entirely self-centered people. Now some of us hide that better than others. Some it's all hanging out there. There's self-orientation. And for others they're much more quiet and subtle about it. But to the core of our being by nature, we are self-oriented people. But here's where the transforming power of the Gospel comes in. We now live a life of love. A life that is oriented toward others. It's a radical change of perspective. A different way of looking at life. Now we pour out our labors and our energies to serve other people. To serve Christ Himself. This new orientation toward others is generated by the new birth in Christ. And it leads to a labor of love. This word labor speaks of wearying toil, of arduous toil that leads to exhaustion. So this is, this is not mere social camaraderie, that type of love. This is a type of love that is driven to serve others, to give oneself to the cause. It's sweaty, exhausting, self-sacrificial in its genuine interest of others and of a lost world. We praise God that we find in You a love that labors. As we will see later, evangelistic labor is indeed part of this, and it's against stiff resistance on the part of the Thessalonians. So a healthy church is a busy church. It's not busy just to be busy. We have to be careful here. It's not chasing around after self-serving activity. But genuine faith and genuine love serve. They work. 
where the members of a church possess vibrant faith and love, there you will find some exhausted people. Now, rest is appropriate. Frenetic activity can be as much an evidence of self-dependence and pride as it is of faith and love. But having said that, a healthy church will be marked by people whose ministry leads to exhaustion. They'll get tired out serving Christ. Because the faith and the love that God has borne in their life is an energy that desires a release to serve Christ in this world. And so they'll serve to exhaustion. The source of this activity is this faith and love. The third characteristic there in verse 3 is a hope that endures. A hope that endures. Steadfastness is the ability to persevere in the face of suffering and trial. It does not get its feelings hurt easily. It does not cower in fear. It does not grow discouraged easily. Steadfastness just keeps plowing through the trial. It sets its face like a flint on the hope of Christ's forgiveness and His return, and it courageously bears with blazing hope whatever God ordains. Whatever God brings about in its life, it just keeps plowing forward. I thank God for the evidences of such steadfast hope in this assembly. As Paul did for the Thessalonian believers. People that just persistently continue to trust Christ through the trials and look to Him with hope. A focus on eternity. The fourth characteristic we find in verses 4 and 5, and that is an evident transformation by the Gospel. An evident, an obvious transformation by the Gospel. Verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our Gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. He has chosen you. 1 John 4.19 says it this way, we love Him because He first loved us. I think then what we have here in verse 4 is he, we chose Him because He first chose us. He has chosen you. As Ephesians 1.4 says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now the point here is not to generate theological debate about free will but to comfort us with the infinite and purposeful love of God. I don't, how do I know that I'm a genuine believer? How do I know that others are? Ultimately, I don't look to my own actions, but I look to the choice of God, to what God has done, to what God has initiated. And I can look with joy to that moment where I was transformed by the Gospel and received it and responded to it, which indeed I must. But in the end, I put my confidence in what God is doing. The decisions that He has made. And I rest in that. Now think of it here in verse 5. How did Paul and his team know that God had chosen the Thessalonians? How did he know that? You note the word there in verse 5, because. Because is the ground of the assertion that God had chosen them. This is what excites them. That God has chosen these people. That He's called them to Himself And the proof of that, the ground of that is this, because our Gospel came to you not only in Word, but in power and the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. Our Gospel, what is that? That is the message of salvation in Jesus' death and resurrection which the Apostle proclaimed in Thessalonica. 
Jesus has come to pay the penalty of sin. He dies in the sinner's place. He rises from the dead to give us His life and rescue us from our sin. That message detonated in Thessalonica. It came with power. It came in word, which I think in this text, as I would understand it, it came in word. That was important. The Gospel needs to come in word. It needs to be declared. But it also came in power. Have you ever seen this? If you've shared the Gospel of Christ with anyone, you have undoubtedly seen the Gospel proclaimed in word only. You share the Gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. You explain how we are sinners and we must respond to this message. And it's like there's a wall there. It doesn't go anywhere. You, you wonder almost in the moment if that people just think you're insane. It just goes nowhere. There's just this dead look. It doesn't connect. But then there's those spine-tingling moments when you're sharing that very same message with an individual and you see in them a conviction of sin. That this message is the truth of God. And someone who's been running away from God suddenly turns and receives that message of salvation. Paul says, when we came to you, it was that way. We proclaimed the Gospel and there was their conviction of sin. There was there a joy in the salvation that Christ provided. And their unbelieving eyes were open to see the Gospel of Christ. We saw that when we proclaimed the Gospel to you. The Spirit of God was there. It came in full conviction and the truth of the matter detonated and brought life. I ask, has that ever happened in your witness? But I would also ask, has that ever happened to you? See, we, we, we need to really come to terms with this here. We're not talking about people who know the facts of the Gospel. They know what Jesus did, and perhaps growing up, maybe even in this church, you have heard from day one that Jesus died to pay the penalty of sin. And you went to a Bible college or a seminary, and you could pass any test on what the Gospel is. But there's a difference between knowing the facts of the Gospel and having that transform your life. Where you come to personal faith in Christ in a way that has a transforming power. Now the Gospel can even have an external social influence upon us. It can kind of steer us and guide us into certain understanding where we know the facts of it and we live even under the social pressure of it, but it hasn't really changed us. Paul rejoices with gladness to say, that's not you. That's not how the Gospel came to you. And I ask that of each of us individually. Is that how the Gospel's come to us? Has it truly come to the place where there has been a power of the Spirit of God changing you and giving you life and giving you hope and giving you joy? Lives transformed by the Gospel is a distinct characteristic of a healthy, vibrant church. Not merely those who know the facts, but those whose lives have been changed by this message. It's kind of sad, but as I think about it, I'm not sure that in all the years that I've 
pastored this church with all the questions that I've fielded from potential visitors, potential members, I'm not sure that anyone's ever asked me, are there evidences in the church of the transforming power of the gospel? Can you point to people whose lives have been radically changed by this message? I don't know if anybody's ever asked me that. I've had questions I don't even want to begin to describe here of things so foolish and small and insignificant it, it baffles the mind. Now I realize maybe in some way or other there are people who've asked this question in, different, in a different sense and, and certainly it's something that we're looking for as we come to discern the health of a church. But listen, Eden Baptist Church, this matters. This matters. Not that we've got the facts, but that we can say, here are lives that are changed because of the Gospel of Christ. Here are people who have been rescued from sin, even those perhaps who've grown up within the church, but have been changed by this message. They'll never be the same again. This transforming Gospel won them and changed them. A fifth characteristic we find at the end of verse 5 and on to verse 7 is a life of discipleship. It first of all shows itself when you have truly been transformed by the Gospel of Christ, one of the first evidences of that is that you follow the right people. You follow the right model, the right example. You follow this model, and they followed Paul. Verse 5, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you. Having come to embrace the Gospel, you looked to us who brought that Gospel. You saw the way that we lived. And I think it certainly includes here an absolute devotion to the cause of Christ. Because they then were willing to suffer affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You watched us and you lived that life out as you followed us. They rejoiced in persecution. They did not wither under the heat of affliction. They followed Paul. Now, they're not following Paul by worshiping Him. He's not a cult leader. You follow Me and the Lord. As he puts it to the Corinthian church, follow Me as I follow Christ. But one of the evidences of genuine faith is that we're following the right models. Who are you following individually? Who are we following as a church? There's no place in the New Testament for a lone ranger Christian who has no models. Are you following the right people? Or are you following people whose lives God rejects? We should not think of ourselves, I've got this under control. I take care of this on my own. I don't need to follow anyone else. I follow Jesus. That probably is a cover for pride. To say that I'm okay in myself to do my own thing my way, you should look to models. Some of them should be dead. You read their writings. You look at a life that's already been lived and under the test of the church of Christ. 
They stood that test, and you can learn from them. But some of them should be living. There should be people, and probably no one person that covers the whole thing, but some who evidence various aspects of the life of Jesus, and you follow them, and you model your life after them in some sense. That's not worshiping man. That's being wise. It's the, it's the life of a disciple. We learn who to follow, who to watch. Under pressure, how does this person act? In this difficulty, how does this person respond? And when that's the case, you're following someone who has their arm around you or who in some way wants to influence you for what is right. You are then, as you follow their life, going to begin to do that with others. So there's following the right model, and then there is discipling others, becoming the right model to others. And that's what we see in verse 7. You followed us, verses 5 and 6, so that, verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith to God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. You were imitators of us, and you became an example to others. Think of this pristine environment for the Gospel. These new churches being formed. The Thessalonian believers are going out throughout that area and they are explaining to others what has happened to them. They're explaining the Gospel of Christ and how it's transformed their lives. And they now are becoming an example and a model for others to follow as they're following Paul and ultimately following Christ. So faithful had the Thessalonians been that Paul says there's nothing more to say. and I, That might be about their reputation among other believers, but some would suggest that he's even saying here there's no reason for me to come back in and continue to evangelize in that area. Now he always speaks a bit in hyperbole here, but he's saying there are points of light, there are stations of the Gospel out there that you are bringing together. I don't need to be there. People seeking the Lord can find one of these places. There's no more that needs to be said. You are proclaiming the Gospel widely. They're doing exactly what Paul was doing. He came into town announcing announcing the Gospel and saying you must turn from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what they did, and now they're going and telling others the same thing. And that's one of the evidences of the kind of labor of a genuine church. It follows the right people. It honors the right people. And it becomes a model to others. Are you following the right people? If deep within your soul you had to choose to be someone else, who would it be? If you could live any life that you chose, you had to become someone else. Who would that be? Maybe in some sense I speak particularly to the older and adults among us. We need to realize in humility that's not worshiping man. That's explaining where our affections are and what matters. And for the young, younger among us, maybe particularly, who are you looking at? This world pushes forward people who are good-looking, who have wealth, 
who have popularity, the athletes, the entertainers, the actors, these all-important people, do you want to be like them? Or do you really want to be like someone who knows Christ and lives for His honor and glory? Who are you following? Who are you looking at? Who are you actively seeking to watch? And whose counsel are you seeking in this world? It's crucial. They sought that right model, and then they became that right model to others. As we come to verse 9, I'll admit this is a subordinate idea, not a separate point as such, but for the sake of continuing this list of evidences of church health, I'd like to separate out this point. You see the word for, it's a connecting idea, but as their example spreads throughout their region, he says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We're on the other side of it now again, of the Apostle proclaiming the Gospel. But as we think of this as a mark of a healthy church, it is repentant fidelity to the worship of Christ. You turned from idols. As he gives thanks, as he looks at what is genuine health, there's people there who have turned their back on the way of life they knew. On idols. Turning and reconciliation to Christ involves turning our back on false gods. It's one move. We don't set our idols aside and then somewhere down the road turn to Christ. It's one move. We turn our back on our idols in repentance as we trust Christ as Savior. We don't add Jesus to the pantheon of gods, setting Him up on our shelf among the other gods. He's maybe even the most important God there. No, we turn from the idols of this world, from the false worship of this world, to serve the living and true God. And that's what they did. A healthy church then is marked by people who have clearly turned their backs on the idols, the demands, and the passions of this world. One of the great problems in Christian churches is that you get in among people and once the sermon's over, once the worship service is over, there's really no difference between them and the world around them. They look just the same. That wasn't true of the Thessalonian believers and it should not be true of us our neighbors ought to be confused by what we think and how we live they ought to say that's somebody that just they just aren't normal they live differently they think differently they're heading in a different direction the things that mean everything to us don't mean that much to them it should be evident that we've turned from the passions the desires the goals of this world. That negatively, positively, to serve the living and true God. They live now to serve Christ, and that was clear to everyone around them. There was a new Lord, a new Master in their life. And how Paul rejoiced to hear this news. This is what matters, to serve, to worship the living and true God and reject the false gods of this world. You have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. We see evidences of that in your life and we give thanks to God for the power of the cross. Mark number 7, expectation of Jesus' return. Verse 10, and to wait for the Son from heaven. To wait 
for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is risen. Jesus is reigning on high. And Jesus is coming again. Healthy churches are not comprised of people who have one foot in this world and one foot in the next. It's a wrong picture. They're people who have set their focus and their gaze on the world to come. They look on the return and the vindication of Christ. Now, people may mock. They may say Jesus will never return. And then there's individuals who come along and make that even harder for us by picking dates and ridiculous things such as this. But the world's going to mock. He said He was coming back 2,000 years ago. It's a long nap. Where is He? You realize that the delay of Christ's return will serve as eternal evidence of the immense patience of God with sinners. Every day that passes without Christ's return is an evidence of God's grace to a lost world. But there were people that waited a long, long time for His first coming. It had been prophesied long ago. But when Jesus came and took on flesh, there were people there to receive Him waiting. And when He comes again, there will be a remnant that is waiting. They won't be telling Him when He's coming. They won't be setting dates. But they will be looking with expectation to the return of the risen Christ. A few were waiting when He came the first time. And a few will be waiting the second time. That is what marks a healthy church. It's what marks nutcases as far as the world is concerned. But for those who know of the risen and reigning Christ, for those who know that God will not break His promise, that what Christ said will come true, He will return. And when He comes for His own who are expecting Him, He will deliver them from the wrath to come. The wrath of God means the anger of God, but it's used as something of a technical term. It is the execution of God's judgment against those who break His law and reject His saving grace and His forgiveness. Now this deliverance from the wrath of God could be a generic reference to a rescue from hell. But more probably, it is a reference to the time after Christ catches up His people from the earth and just before He sets up His physical kingdom. There will be a time of unique wrath and judgment and Jesus will deliver His people from it in the sense that He will keep them out of it. This salvation in Christ is what a healthy church looks for. It's where its anticipation is. It's not living in this world to stay here, but to meet Christ. As you evaluate your life, as we evaluate our life as a church, this is not an exhaustive list, but it is a very comprehensive one in some sense, and it is a vital one. What really matters, what we need to come to embrace, even though we're familiar with these ideas, what really matters, what we should be looking for and rejoice to see 
in one another's lives is a faith that works, a love that labors, a hope that endures. What we should long to see and rejoice in is the evident transformational power of the Gospel in the lives of our people. A life of discipleship, following the right models, and being a right model to others. Repentant fidelity to the worship of Christ. People who have turned their back on the idols of this world and are worshiping Christ alone. And those who live in expectation of His return. I ask the question as we think on these marks of a thriving church, is that what encourages our hearts about one another? How quickly we can have very small ideas about what a good church is, what a thriving church is. Comfortable facilities. That's what a, how, how, that's, that's what a church needs to have. People are friendly and they treat me how I want to be treated. There's programs there that meet my family's needs. There's sermons there that meet my expectations. I think sometimes it's undoubtedly the case that some Christians really don't want to be in a healthy church. They want to be in a comfortable one. They want to be in a place that meets the needs that they have designed, that they have defined. And they don't rejoice in the transformational power of Christ operative in that body. It's not what turns them on. What turns them on is that they're getting what they want out of the church. We just don't see anything of that here. We don't see anything of an orientation in a church providing what we want and meeting whatever needs people define. What we find here is a church where the life-transforming power of the Gospel is evident. This is the question we should be asking. This is what we should see in one another that brings thanksgiving to God and joy to our hearts. When I see individuals who are working and laboring for Christ because of their evident faith, desirous to serve Him because of the energies of salvation that are within Him, long for an outflow to advance the cause of Christ, that's what we should rejoice in. When we see the transforming power of the Gospel working and changing lives, rooting out sin, people following the right models and becoming the right models, we should see that in one another and give thanks for that. We should rejoice to see a holy church. A people who have turned their back on the important things of this world. The popularity, the riches, the pleasures that are rooted only in the here and now. A people that thinks of Christ. A people whose life is so ordered that if Jesus came back, it wouldn't mess with their agenda. It, be, it seems that for some, it, it, we can be oriented this way, all of us. If Jesus came back, it really kind of messed with my goals. I wasn't ready to be done yet. 
What a wicked thought. That we would be a people that as Jesus returns, that return is the fulfillment of every desire. The consummation of all that we live for. To see Jesus Christ. If we see that within one another, it's that which should give us joy. And if we are that as a church, it's that which should give us joy. Not this world's commendation. Not the external success as others would define it. But that I love Christ with all my heart. And seeing Him will fulfill every desire. Is that who we are? Is that who we're becoming? By God's grace, let's rejoice as we see it in one another and seek Him together as a church. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we give thanks to You for Jesus Christ and the salvation that's in Him. And I give thanks to You that all of these evidences, these marks of a healthy church, I thank You that it is not difficult to put a face with all of these things in our assembly. Every one of us needs to grow and to change. And we long, Father, for You to make us this kind of a church. We need Your help, Your aid. We need victory over sin. And we need the presence of the Spirit of God to, to, to continue to transform us. But I thank You, God, for what You're doing. And I pray that You'll, that you'll teach me to rejoice in what matters. That You'll teach us as a church to find joy and thanksgiving in one another's lives in what matters. For anyone that knows not Christ as Savior, I pray that You would bring them into that joy. Not so that a church can be built up with external numbers, but that Your church can be built up with transformed lives. We pray that You will bring people to saving faith, changing them by the Gospel into this assembly that we might thrive and grow and be faithful in our work. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.